I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this week's episode of The Trade Guys, we talk about Biden's State of the Union address, bilateral trade with China, and electric vehicle supply chains. All that and more in this week's episode. Okay, good afternoon, Trade Guys. You're stuck with me this week, and in Andrew's absence, I have to unload 100% of my football knowledge, which is that my hometown Kansas City Chiefs are playing in the Super Bowl. That's about all I know, but hopefully we'll we'll prevail on Sunday. Speaking of that, I feel like DC's equivalent of the Super Bowl was this week, which is the State of the Union. So let's kick off with that and get your reactions. This is football puns. We're kicking, we're kicking off, are we? Yes, mostly because I think the Super Bowl will have much higher ratings than the State of the Union did. So perhaps our listeners slept in or did something else or just scrolled through Twitter the next morning, but we'll try to fill in the blanks. There was a show last night on TV about best Super Bowl commercials of all time, and I watched practically none of it, but I tuned in at the end to discover who the winner was which most of you are too young to remember, but will remember from constant reprises. It's the uh, Mean Joe Green Coca-Cola commercial was the winner. The runner-up was one that I had not seen before about uh, some hairless goat that is running around in the field with goats that have lots of fur. Well, yeah. let's get back to the uh, the State yes, of the Union. Sorry. Speaking of winners, was trade policy a winner in the so too? Or what did Biden say, if anything, about trade? Well, he said practically nothing, I think to the surprise of no one, but to the disappointment of the Chamber of Commerce, who said they were disappointed. The main reference to trade, if not the only reference to trade, was a short rant about Buy America and their intention to, I guess, deepen the Buy American requirements deeper into supply chains down to the raw material level to make sure that the things that are made here is also American in addition to the end product being assembled here. He didn't go into detail about exactly how they're going to do that or what their statutory authority for that is. I don't know. I mean, the Buy American Act is limited in in what it does, so I haven't seen exactly how they're proposing to implement this. Scott, do you know anything? I actually I was trying to determine uh, exactly where in statute you'd find the authority to do this. Not that that's been a stopper before, but somebody ought to ask that question. I could not find an answer. I was also struggling to find anything about trade. First, I would just that our centrist appearing president, who was a centrist on many issues for many years as a senator, seemed to channel his inner Bruni bro in this particular night because there was really a lot of spending and something for everybody. And we had like 70s style national champions and industrial sectors that were going to be particularly uh, champions for the administration, and lead pipes and junk fees. I heard about junk fees, and I had to look that up, what it was. It's when you reserve a rental car, and the rate quoted is $39.95. When you turn the car, it's $103. But <laughs> apparently, the federal government is going to turn its attention on these things, but not trade. I think it's a missed opportunity. Bill's right. None of us expected it to be there. But if you look at the president's ratings, the two places where he's underwater with the American people are the economy, and inflation and an active growth focused agenda with things like exports and perhaps permitting reform that gets exports of demanded products like liquefied natural gas to Europe and 
things that the economy would like to provide, we'll be able to provide. So, But there was none of that. And so I think we're rerun here of some slow growth and stagnant times. And uh, it's unfortunate because we're doing everything else, though. We're, we're concerned about non-disclosure agreements for fast food workers, as I, if I understood that right. So I'm not sure what to make of that, Lindley. This may become a, a more significant, unfortunately, partisan issue going forward. I was just in a meeting when, when this came up, and the people are perceiving some modest resurgence of, of interest in traditional trade policy on the Republican side of the aisle. And we are, too, here at, at CSIS, uh, seeing a, a bit of that. And it, I think, can be explained in two ways. One, you know, as, as Trump fades off into the sunset, and I think he will over the next two years, I mean, he has diehard supporters, but his support throughout the country, I think, goes down a little bit every single day. Other Republicans that are sort of tethered to him become liberated, and trade is always an area where I think he was a little bit of an outlier on the in the, in the traditional Republican Party on trade, because it's historically been a pro-business, pro-trade, internationalist party. And Trump changed all that. And if you look at poll data, Republican support for trade dropped precipitously in 2015 and 2016 once he started running. And it's been coming back really since 2018. And it may continue to come back as Republican politicians are less worried about crossing him as he becomes less significant. There's also, uh, the, as always uh, in my little world, the cynical expo- political explanation for these things. And I think what we're seeing also is some Republicans who see this as an opportunity to, to uh, tweak the president. On the grounds of what Scott said a minute ago, it's missed opportunities. If you talk to farm state congressmen and senators, farmers have always been very interested in market access because they depend on it. And just if you look at the trade data from Tuesday, we have now slipped into a very small deficit in agriculture trade, which has happened before and uh, not last year, but the year, the two years before that. But historically, we used to have enormous surpluses and exports, uh, ag exports actually were up last year, but so were ag imports and we're in slight deficit. So I think the farmers more than ever are focused on the need for more markets and more uh, foreign markets. And this administration is not really responding to that with any meaningful initiatives. And so I think you've got some uh, Republicans who are thinking this may be a weak spot in the administration's armor that they can push on a little bit and deal with their constituency, which would like to see more trade, and particularly their agriculture constituency, and tweak the president at the same time. All that said, I don't know that it's going to get very far, because it it, it leads to the question of new trade negotiating authority, which was the, the instrument for you know achieving what they will say they want to achieve. And it's very hard to envision that getting very far without active and enthusiastic administration support, which is clearly not there. Well, let's turn now to another news bite from this week, which is new data that show a rise in U.S. trade deficit. So my question for you is if the trade deficit is actually an important measurement of U.S. economic health or not. Well, look, we've run trade deficits for many, many years. And of course, trade deficit, since it is a measure of the one side of the current account, the other side, the investment side, is in surplus. So we've got to think of the trade deficit as a balance sheet. Long-standing, persistent deficits tend to resolve themselves somewhat painfully. But the United States has last run a trade surplus or a current account surplus only during a recession. I believe it was 1991. No, the last time we had a trade surplus was 1975. Oh, really? So okay. we're coming up wow. to the 50th anniversary. We had budget surpluses in the 90s. Yes. Uh, thanks to the administration I was in, and uh, I won't 
take any of the credit, but you should give Clinton some credit for that. But the last trade surplus was a 75. Got it. Uh, one, of the, one of the problems that George H.W. Bush had on, on his re-election campaign trail was oncoming recession, which I thought ended up with a small trade surplus, but I guess not. So it's been a while. Overall, we do a lot of fiscal stimulus in this post-COVID era, and that means federal budget deficits that are quite large. I think the current deficit is projected at about twice what it was a year ago. So because we continue to spend and that money winds up in consumers' pockets, they spend as well. And that's really, it is the consumer that tends to drive current account or trade surpluses and deficits. So we run deficits because we spend that way and people consume. It has not been a problem in the past. We're going to have a fight over federal budget spending and the debt limit. So we'll see whether that has any effect on the trade deficit. Okay. Well, speaking of a ballooning deficit, if you'll permit me my one uh, punny joke from the news cycle, (laughs) some on the Hill this week have suggested that the balloon incident will actually lead to a more hawkish China posture when it comes to trade policy on the Hill. Do you agree with that assessment? What does that mean in practical terms? Well, it's hard to see it getting more hawkish than it has been, although I was surprised this week at a slightly contrarian element, which uh, I had not expected. The House uh, Financial Services Committee held a hearing, the outbound investment issue, which we've talked about here before, which is mostly focused on blocking American investment in China. And the Republicans uh, on the committee, including the chairman, Congressman McHenry, approached it with uh, surprising caution from my point of view. And while there are a number of of Republicans who very much want to have a strong review regime, a review and potential disapproval regime for outbound investment, beginning with Senator Cornyn, because he he and Senator Casey were the bipartisan authors of the initial bill on this, these Republicans in the House side were suggesting that we ought to proceed more cautiously and more carefully, and that we don't want to do things that might cause us more harm than it would cause the Chinese. And not saying exactly that this would do that, but the message clearly was this might not be the smartest thing to do, which is kind of the opposite of what I expected to hear. I expected both parties in the committee to be frothing at the mouth about this and pounding the table and saying that we need to enact this immediately. And instead, what we got was a, a yellow light instead of a, a green light. Now, at the same time, you know, the House Foreign Affairs Committee, I believe, has already announced they intend to vote on banning TikTok at the end of this month. So we're getting mixed signals on uh, these issues uh, from the House. There are clearly still a group of people there, I think in both parties, that want to find tougher measures to impose against the Chinese and are continuing their search for them. What seems to be new is that there are also some that are not so certain about that. And for the first time in a while, are prepared to stand up and say they're not so certain about it. China is always, the relationship is complicated and fraught with problems. And so that's no change from the past. In this case, though, I, I think that the outbound investment policy itself is a muddle. And it's going to take a lot of work to figure out what, what are you trying to do here? And this one, you can really cause a lot of harm without doing much damage to anybody else if you do it wrong. So given that we do run large trade deficits, we're, we're in need of the investment that balances it off. And, and we do outbound investment for good, sensible business reasons. It's a part of the conduct of international commerce. Plus, the character of investment is somewhat fungible and difficult to pin down in many cases. So even trying to identify what is American investment 
versus the investment that is generated through a foreign subsidiary of an American company. So it'll be a mess and perhaps even further muddle our China policy if we go too far down that path. So I'm glad there's some reflection, at least at this point. Well, the other thing to keep in mind is that we can talk all we want about policy and the way things should operate. But at the end of the day, markets are are really driven by people and, and people are consumers. And what we just learned on Tuesday was a record trade deficit, just under a trillion dollars, and more interestingly, a record deficit with China. So for all that people are unhappy with China, and they are, we've talked about poll data on that subject from Pew Research Center that said last year, 82% of the people had an unfavorable view of China. For all the unhappiness, people are still happily going off and buying Chinese products. Buy a lot of their stuff, that's for sure. At record levels. And so the questions I was getting on Tuesday was, what does this say about globalization? And you can debate that a multiple number of different ways. But what it does suggest is that, you know, you can have all the debates you want about globalization, but in the end, people are going to buy what they want to buy. And if they want to continue buying imports, trade is, is, is kind of booming here, not in a way that's going to reduce our deficit. And that, I think, has raises longer term issues. But uh, it's not you, you can't uh, look at the numbers from Tuesday, which is, you know, 2022 year end data. You can't look at those numbers and conclude the United States is withdrawing into its shell and moving away from the world and, and disengaging. What you can say is what we said at the beginning of this particular episode, which was there's the administration is piling up missed opportunities to promote exports. Even so, exports were going up. Well, let's turn now to another topic that also involves, to a degree, at least imports from China, and that is electric vehicles, which we've discussed many times in recent months, especially since the IRA passed. But are supply chains shifting? What do we know now about the nature of EV supply chains? Who's making the stuff that we need in order to really accelerate the green transition? Well, this is a big part of the thinking, at least, by the supporters of subsidies for electric vehicles. But electric vehicles are interesting if you compare them to to internal combustion vehicles, in that they have a much simpler drivetrain. Drivetrain is the engine transmission and some of the drive axles in a normal vehicle. The battery-powered electric vehicle has many fewer parts in the electric motors and control systems that run it. So in some ways, it's a simpler vehicle. But when it comes to the power storage, maybe the best way to generalize it, all vehicles store energy so they can use it on the highway, use it rolling independently. In a gasoline-powered car, it's obviously the gas tank and the, the fuel pump and the related equipment, which is relatively simple. On the other hand, the batteries themselves are quite complex and a feat of the modern uh, industrial economy in many ways. Well, there's a lot of people involved in a complicated product like a lithium battery that's sized for an automobile. If you look at it in four stages, mining, the processing of the, of the mineral, constructing and and the components of the battery, and then assembling it into cells. So four separate stages. It's quite a global process already that you have, you know, mining lithium is mined in Australia. Uh, Nickel Indonesia is the leading share of of mining supplied for the uh, battery supply chain. Cobalt is uh, from Africa, the Congo. Graphite comes from China. So the, the materials themselves and the internal processing is often in China because that's where the most electric vehicles are made and sold, frankly, at this point. So getting that supply chain Americanized will be a real challenge. But even getting the quantities required for the estimated future sales volume will face a number of constraints. 
the International Energy Agency, which is uh, one of the great data resources of all time, helpfully cal calculated the investments needed to satisfy the mining output for the 2030 climate goals. And IEA says we need another, another 30 copper cobalt mines, 70 lithium and nickel mines, and 80 copper mines. That's all. And the average mine, as Bill pointed out in the previous episode, takes 17 years from first inception to get all through the permitting and get it in production. We have got real hurdles on a complicated product. Now, the race is on. A lot of U.S. firms are, or firms are around, from around the world, are building facilities in the U.S. to assemble batteries and to build components. But mining and processing is still something that is not in the United States, by and large, and is a critical item. So how does trade policy intersect with our ability to accelerate our bid for additional EVs? Is there a policy change that you would recommend for the administration that would help secure more critical minerals? I know that they've pursued this topic in, for example, the supply chain pillar of the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. But is there more we can do to make sure that we have continued access to the inputs that we really need? Well, that relates to where we began on, on Buy America, because what the administration's approach is to try to uh, create demand for domestic products by insisting that they be incorporated into the final product. So if you're going to say that your battery needs to be made with American lithium, which needs to be processed in America, I mean, that is impossible right now. But what it does, and particularly if you're providing uh, incentives in your, in, as in the Inflation Reduction Act for battery production, what it does is it encourages companies to go out and create those opportunities to look for lithium deposits in the United States, and there are some, and to look into the viability of, of extraction and to look into uh, processing. I think it's probably too early to say whether those elements, uh, particularly the processing, are going to be economical even with the kind of support the government is operating. But certainly you're beginning to see people look at that, talk about that, and talk about plans for different part plants to produce different parts of the battery process in the United States and to look at, if not the U.S., then non-China sources for uh, some of the minerals, Australia and, and Chile and Canada, the primary sources. The government is kind of in the business of encouraging companies to restructure their supply chains and offering them some rewards if they do that. Whether that'll be successful or not, it's too soon to say. Yeah, look, this is a big country. You know, we have a reasonably big share of the Earth's crust here that's part of the United States. We don't tend to do a lot of binding to the, given our share of the Earth's crust. So uh, I think there's an opportunity there. Permitting is always a problem. NIMBY is a problem, of course, as well. We'll see. This is a strong force in terms of the incentives provided by the government against entrenched opposition in terms of people who don't want mines in their backyard. So we need a lot more of the stuff than we have now, that's for sure. So the constraints are obvious. Great. Well, thank you all. I think that concludes this week's episode of The Trade Guys. We will be back with our scheduled release date next week, and we look forward to touching base then. So next week. Thank you. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.